Hey, everybody. Welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have Puck reporter Tina Wynn today. We will chat with her in just a second. But first, thanks for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Tina Wynn is a national correspondent for Puck, covering the world of Donald Trump and the American right. Previously, she was a White House reporter for Politico, a staff reporter for Vanity Fair Hive, and an editor at Mediaite, and was nominated for a James Beard Award for her coverage of the restaurant industry while working at The Brazier. Her new book, The MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out, is to be released January 16th. Tina, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, a lot of fun MAGA stuff going on in this world. So I, I'm really excited to get into that a little deeper with you because uh, it does <laughs> seem to be dominating every single moment of our culture today, politics and other. But first, I'm really curious about you and your background and how you grew up and how you got interested in this crazy world of politics. Oh, yeah. Um, the funny thing is, is that I never thought it was quite relevant until people started asking me while I was covering this beat, how is it you know this so well? Well, I used to be involved in activism. Why were you involved in activism? What the hell? Well, the first thing you have to know about me is that I am obsessed with the founding fathers. And I had been since I was like in third grade. I grew up in Boston and ended up going to this private school where... Uh, the it was this prep school called Milton that it was founded in 1789 mm -hmm. and so it had been around since the very beginning of the country and since it was in Boston and since it was in land of the American Revolution our entire school curriculum was based on visiting those events learning about the revolution learning about the Boston Tea Party mm -hmm. um and so I just absolutely fell in love with the concept of creating a government from scratch, especially around that period of time when the Enlightenment was in full kick. Um, people started thinking, hey, what if like power was not granted through divine providence and concentrated in one being? What if we did a democratic republic? Would that be weird? Could we do this? And, and uh, how old, when these thoughts were going through your head, how old were you? Probably like in fourth grade, wow. fourth grade, fifth grade. Um, Unfortunately, I was also a bit of a theater kid, so we did the musical 1776, which is all about signing the Declaration of Independence and in the three months preceding it. Historically, mm. quite accurate, apparently. And then when I heard that song and everything that I was thinking about in my head just boiled down into a series of very catchy songs, I was like, this is it. I'm studying this forever. I love this. And... The more I thought about it was as I got older and people pointed out the contradictions of me being a minority woman whose parents were immigrants and became affiliated with Harvard University in various ways to suddenly be fluent in MAGA stuff is just weird, right? Like that doesn't make sense. And what I was thinking and what I realized was that I was kind of obsessed with American history just because I didn't know any of my own. So my parents were Vietnamese refugees and rest their souls. They just never really talked about their life in Vietnam or the deeper 
cultural environment mm. that was what how they grew up, why they were the way they were, what sort of um, environment, intellectual or otherwise, shaped them. I kind of just grew up with this blank slate behind me, and all I knew was like rich people and Boston Brahmins. So, but what they did know when they got to America was that there were certain signifiers that meant you would be successful and going to the best school was one of them and the best school happened to be Harvard. My father was super intelligent as was my mother. He uh, taught at Harvard for a bit in the pediatrics department and my mother got a PhD at the school of education. So like, and this is where the traditional Asian parents kick in. They're like, oh, we went to Harvard. You should go to Harvard, too. <laughs> and that was sort of the plan until my family started hitting these financial difficulties. My home life got turned upside down. And then I started realizing that the gulf from thinking, oh, I can get into Harvard to what does it actually take to get into Harvard started coming into full focus for me. Like all of a sudden more and more rich people started coming into Milton. All of these new opportunities opened up for them because they had money for summer camps and tutors and free time to um, volunteer at places and more time to study and kick ass academically. Mm -hmm. And Milton was also the type of school where you could legitimately say that people cared more about your academic performance than how much money you had, but you also did have an advantage there. I didn't realize that at the time and neither did my mom. She was just sort of like looking at the, what these kids were able to accomplish, but not exactly how they were able to get there. And she would just turn to me and be like, Tana, why can't you do that? What's wrong with you? They uh, were conservative politically? They, they would claim that they vote Democratic, but I also do think it's because there's a bit of loyalty for um, the fact that Ted Kennedy helped them get citizenship, um, mm. or his office did. And I would say my father may have been more socially conservative. Mm -hmm. I um, kind of lost track of what happened to him after I turned 16. And my mother, I think, was definitely more liberal. But if you were to ask them where they would fall in the traditional left-right spectrum, I would not know where to place them. Uh, they just sort of existed tangential to the American political understanding that, like, I would say, like, white people, African-American, black people, Hispanics, would fall into. Um, I wish I got into this in the book, but this turned into such like deep cut nerd crap that <laughs> they were like, this is interrupting the flow of the story. But in senior year, I did a um, thesis paper at Claremont McKenna looking at the origins and breakdown of Asian American political engagement. And I found that even though they're a pretty large population, Asian American immigrants did not particularly participate in what you and I would consider political activism, like community organizing, interest groups coming together to directly petition the government. Um, do you mind if I go into really, really deep political philosophy? We're all about the deep here. Dig. Oh boy, here we go. So <laughs> Bring it. My understanding of American and I'd say most Western uh 
forms of government and the social contract would date back to the area of the book, the Leviathan in like the 1600s. And it posits that the uh, social contract of governance is an agreement between the head of state, in that case, the Mm -hmm. king, and the governed, aka the populace. Um, The metaphor he used was the king is the head and the people are the body. And it's always a contract that says we are going to give up our rights as the people in order for you to governance. But that also means that we hold you accountable directly to govern us. And if you break that contract, we reserve the right to at least complain very loudly, at most try to remove you from office. Um, And while that didn't necessarily work in England, where the king still at that point had a great deal of sovereignty, uh, it started getting replicated in America when the founding fathers began trying to formulate a theory of governance. And in France, they tried to do that. It ended up in the revolution, which was very bloody. And uh, the and uh, the Americans were like, wait, no, that sucks. Don't do that. But ultimately, it boils down to we are the governed. You are the head of state. Let's go like this. In the Chinese form of government, which was eventually replicated by pretty much everyone in Asia, the ultimate form of authority, a.k.a. the head of state, was just so far removed from their immediate concentric circles of how they lived their lives mm-hmm. that the emperor was sort of a non-entity. And Confucius wrote that if you were a son who disobeyed their father in order to show obedience to the emperor, that was worse. Like, that was absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do. And Instead, think of the form of influence and authority as concentric circles. So there's a person in the middle, there are their immediate parents, there are their grandparents, there are their locals, then there are their uh, regional officials further and further and further out. And the idea of dealing directly with the government in order to make your grievances known and get civic um, equity was completely just out of the ordinary Mm -hmm. for most Asian immigrants coming in. So you didn't start seeing a lot of civic action in their communities until maybe the second or third generation when the kids who were born here go to school, learn what American government government is like and start going, okay, maybe it's time for us to do like to put together our own interest groups and civic organizations, which is why, for instance, you'd have Jewish American groups even though they have a smaller percentage of population, have much more influence than Asian Americans do. I'm Jewish. So as a Jew, I agree totally that Jews have never been known for being shy and unopinionated because we believe we have a right to be. And so it's interesting to hear someone like yourself explain the foundational aspects to Asian culture and how it views itself and therefore how the people have become or not engaged civically. You know, you said you're from Boston. Given what you just said, it, it's got to be really gratifying to now have an Asian American mayor. I'm so, and so, I'm you so see impressed this. by her accomplishments, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you about the founding fathers. As someone who is obsessed by them, we've heard throughout our lives the founding fathers were so smart. The way they crafted this 
government and the institutions in it and the constitution, et cetera. And now we're kind of finding that they might not have been so smart, right? Because the guardrails that we thought were there are so gray and left mm -hmm. up to interpretation and interpretation by the MAGA world, starting from Trump all the way down, um, this ambiguous language that's going to mm -hmm. wind its way up to the Supreme Court and perhaps be ruled on a partisan basis or not. And the, the truth is the Founding Fathers really n never could quite conceive of and certainly, as we now know, didn't prepare for a Donald Trump. They definitely did not. Um, actually, they were worried that such a guy would exist in the future. It, it feels like they were more worried yeah. about a Nixon. Right. They kind of sort of prepared for Nixon. So I think there are two parts to answer that question. The first was that the founders definitely wanted to avoid the concentration of power in the executive branch, which was why there were so many safeguards built in to give power to Congress over making anything in the government really happen. But then you start seeing a group of legal scholars coming in thinking, all right, what else can the president do under his under the authorities that are given to him by the Constitution? And then they start like trying to exploit that. But that's where we are today. Like you talk about the other safeguards that the founding fathers inserted into the Constitution, like separation of power, co-equal branches of government. But I think what the founding fathers, again, probably couldn't conceptualize and certainly didn't prepare for is a Kevin McCarthy, a Mitch McConnell, a Congress that completely abdicates its constitutional responsibility. That's where I am in terms of the Founding Fathers. It's like, look, they created something pretty amazing, but they never really prepared for some maniac who's going to come along and turn it on its head. And that's unfortunately Here, where we are today. Yeah, here's the premise of my book. Uh, it's that the conservative movement began this project in the late 50s, early 60s, to uproot forms of what they saw was communist influence infiltrating the federal government and expanding their powers into the states and to individual lives. And so they're like, all right, they're using these powers. What can we do to counteract those powers and in turn gain our own influence? So they start pouring a lot of money into... Um, think tanks mm -hmm. to outline policy mm -hmm. to that they essentially just like throw in Reagan's lap the day that he takes office. Um, they start developing their own conservative legal theory and theorists. They start trying to get their judges into the legal system. They start training the next generation of members of Congress and their attendant staff and supporters to execute their agenda in a conservative way. Like Mitch McConnell, for instance, was part of the Leadership Institute when he was in his early 20s. That's how long this prog program has been going on. <laughs> However, um, they come up with all of these g beautiful game plans and theories and things that they can execute on over the decades. What they believe they are protecting, though, is a very specific form of conservatism that respects the boundaries of the Constitution while allowing them to enact their conservative agenda of anti-communism and uh, religious freedom and focusing on 
American might. Reagan, I think, had to court the conservative movement and become more conservative in order to win their support in his election bid in the 1980s. But they go into Trump thinking, no, we have this powerful network. Our vision of conservatism will prevail. The thing that we protected for 60, 60 years is what we deem conservatism, what we all in this network say is conservatism. There's no way that Donald Trump will ever become president. And then he becomes president. And then they're faced with this choice of, oh, let's try. Can we fight Donald Trump on this? Or can we or do we have to roll over and cave? And a lot of them did try to counter Trump for the longest time. Like Heritage held out for as long as they possibly could. The National Review held out. And however, Trump keeps acting unilaterally, keeps... Ex um, well, well, because those entities yeah. don't wield any power. Exactly. They, have, they try to wield influence, and other previous Republican presidents had to acknowledge places like Heritage and the Federalist um, Society in order to maintain their influence over the right. If they disapproved of him, the president would have a problem. Mm -hmm. Trump does not care. Trump does not exist within this system. Trump just sees every tool that's available to him and is like, oh, I'm the president. I can do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. And even though the conservatives are able to extract things like appointing federal judges from him, they cannot stop him from unilaterally using the executive um, executive actions to institute a travel ban. Like, if you were a heritage guy next to Trump, you would be like, sir, that's unconstitutional. And he's going, no, I want to do this. Why can't I do this? Oh, what's this constitution? That's bullshit. So either you completely lose influence to another group of um, people within the White House who are just going, okay, sure, whatever, just do this. Whatever you say, Mr. President, or they hop on board and try to find a justification for what it is they're doing. Like, it's this massive internal conflict that a lot of Republicans have of, like, if you talk to people who are over the age of, I'd say, 30, who entered the conservative movement in the, like, dying era, age of the Tea Party, they were like, this is not the party I signed up for. Why am I here? What is happening? Why is it that I have to, like, junk all of my beliefs? But you know what? They're still in there. It's Well, that's a good question. I want to ask you yeah. about that because, first of all, your book is called The MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out. Uh, it's releasing January 16th. So yeah. MAGA or MAGA, depends on how you pronounce it. People pronounce it both ways. It's a phenomenon to me because after eight years or so, I still don't think I understand what it is other mm -hmm. than my personal belief that at its roots, it's all about racism because we've seen how it's not really about economic dissatisfaction. It's not about policy of any sort. It's given license to that underbelly of our society that normally stayed dormant and quiet and did not say and do the quiet things out loud the way they do them today. 
And he's their guy. It's like, hey, we don't like black and brown people and Asian people and Jews. And he doesn't either. And so as long as he's in power, we get to just be our ugly selves. And I can't think of any other reason what would make anyone go against the Constitution, the rule of law, their own self-interests. So I'm curious to know what you think as someone who was in that culture and then got out. What makes these people tick? Is it a political movement? Is it a cult? Is it a religion? Are they brainwashed? And is racism at the root of it? I believe at the very root of someone who decides to not just vote for Donald Trump, but become full-fledged MAGA is a sense of fear that the world is changing too quickly, that the way that they grew up in the 1950s and 60s where everyone was kind of white and a fear that they're losing power and that their way of life is collapsing with the rise of what they call a woke agenda. I would summarize that as one, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that Fox News and all the media apparatuses at the time were like, look at this violent looting in the streets, that's mm -hmm. a result of it. Another one would be affirmative action and diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that make them believe, oh no, these elitist institutions and big corporations are taking away our positions into like our positions in the business world and our children's rights to get into Harvard, for instance, because of their merits in exchange for balancing out their bodies for uh, the sake of diversity. Um, third is ceding American international power to foreign countries or having those foreign countries have a bigger hold on American daily life. Uh, the border crisis right now is scaring the hell out of a lot of MAGA people, not to say the rest of the country, because as Trump would put it, there are immigrants flooding over the border in masses and sleeping on our streets and mm -hmm. giving a lot of crime. Um, Mexico does not like this. Guatemala does not like this. It's clearly a sign that there are horrific instability south of the border in those political, like, in those governments that drives a lot of Hispanics to try to come to America. And China as a global superpower taking American jobs is keeping um, people up at night. But if you go really, really deep into the reasons that minorities also support Donald Trump, it goes back to that fear as well. But in their case, it's like, well, we worked really, really hard to not just enter America through the legal channels, but we wanted to integrate ourselves into American society. Also, we escaped socialism. And it was bad. So Cubans have a really distinct memory of Fidel Castro destroying their own way of life. Venezuelans immigrating into the U.S. have that as well. But you see, that, it's um, an interesting point you're raising because yeah. it's not quite socialism. You know, uh, Castro is a dictator, a brutal, murderous dictator. That's what they were escaping, mm -hmm. which makes it all the more perplexing that they would vote for a guy who says on day one, I am going to be a dictator. That's the part I can't reconcile. He's going to be, a, if he says that he's being a dictator he's also adding that with the i am going to uphold the american way of life that you guys dreamed of when you came to america 
because we believe that all of these elitist liberal institutions are trying to take that away from you, but, which is which is like also how Hitler came into power. Right. Right. We know he wants to be a dictator. He wants to be president for life. He's made it very clear who he admires in the world, be it Orban and, and Xi and Putin and Hitler and Erdogan, like all the people who are strong men who have absolute control. I mean, he's impressed with Xi because he has ruthless, his word, ruthless control over his people. Donald Trump likes that shit. So when he uses the word dictator, it, it can only mean he's telegraphing what he wants, which again, to me, makes it so perplexing how anyone who's escaped persecution, escaped dictatorships, who knows what it's like to live where one person has absolute control, how they can support him. I would counter that with not... Like the reason that dictators come into power is because not only are they willing to bend whatever guardrails are there to prevent him from becoming a dictator in the first place, it is because he's swept in there by the power of populism, by offering a specific vision of what that future will look like. Mm -hmm. And then bringing this back to Donald Trump, his promise to the populist movement is that he believes that their way of life is being destroyed. Um, the place where they have power, they have economic security, they have what they believe is a sense of, uh, if at the very least psychological safety, at the most psychological dominance over outside influences such as immigrants and um, LGBT so when you say they, I just want to, you're referring to white people. White people and the minorities who love Donald Trump. Like, but that, see, that's the point that, yeah. I, that I can't get my head around because the, the non-white people who support Donald Trump, his platform, his promise, his goals for a, a Trump 2.0 administration are not in mm -hmm. their best interests. It's not their okay, administration. I, I'm very sorry to have to do this to you, but I am going to accuse you from of as someone who is coming from a white Caucasian liberal point of view in understanding how it is that minorities consider their own economic interests and political interests. Um, this is a fact that shocks a lot of people when I bring it up, but Vietnamese Americans love Donald Trump. Like, they are the most pro-Donald Trump Asians you will ever meet in your life. Um, and it is precisely because even though they are directly benefited from refugee asylum programs instituted in the 70s, they are also like, we worked our asses off to integrate ourselves into American society. We love American society. We are now wealthy because of American society. We are scared what socialism will bring because we have such a pitched emotional like psychological um, reaction to the fall of Saigon and how it absolutely ruined our lives like my parents for two years my mom's family of 12 was literally eating nothing but pumpkins and rice because they were not allowed to have food right but is the fall of America is the fall of American democracy going to be any better I mean, assuming as one as, believes that's as, what's going to happen look, with a Trump 2.0. As long as they feel safe and as long as they look at a leader and be like, he is going to not make America 
that was a government we knew collapsed. That is a government we rejected. We came here. America looked like this. We felt safe. It is looking like it's going to go back to that. Trump is going to protect us from that. We but, don't but care. But Trump how is the cause we, of that. If we look at history in the last eight years or so, Trump is the cause of violence in the street. Trump is the cause of insurrection. People were scaling the walls of the Capitol, not because of anything but Trump. Trump is the one talking about bans on immigrants and mass deportations and camps. Well, okay, this is another. This is another factor that I don't think the founders were able to anticipate coming which was the rise of alternative forms of alternate forms of media that would openly one espouse a point of view that was directly anti-democratic and two target minority communities in such a way that sold their um that sold those ideas to a form that they would find acceptable um one of the biggest under misunderstood phenomena in, I think, coverage of right-wing media is the rise of these extremely micro-targeted news sites specifically written in immigrants' native languages. Um, <clears throat> a lot of Vietnamese language news that's not based out of Vietnam is written by right-wingers. Uh, there are growing Hispanic, na like Hispanic language, right-wing news outlets and blogs. And... I really couldn't speak to what Hispanic disinformation, like right-wing news looks like, but I know for a fact that Vietnamese right-wing news targeted, especially to older voters who were refugees, is like Mark Zuckerberg is, in, is being controlled by the Chinese Communist Party in order to prevent Americans from having a voice, and the CCP is influencing Joe Biden and Hunter Biden through all of these like conspiracy theories that are now forming the basis of the impeachment inquiry into mm -hmm. Biden. And the news that you are talking about, the analysis that you are talking about does not filter into right-wing news. Definitely not across America. Mm -hmm. And if it is, it will be spun into a format of, oh, the left-wing media wants you to think this. This isn't important. This is why it's not important. You should focus on this. But then it also highlights news formats and news stories that someone who is reading media news from journalistic, journalistic institutions like the Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Post will not find important, do not meet the level of, like, quote unquote, importance that makes it into their news. Uh, just speaking from my own experience, um, back at Vanity Fair and Politico, I would be constantly on right-wing news and be like, hey, I think these guys are talking about storming the Capitol, and I would bring it back to Politico, and they're like, this is super fringe. Like, that's not important. We need to understand what's happening inside Congress and what the White House is thinking. And mm -hmm. I'm like, insurrection? <laughs> <laughs> like, I go into this in the book as well. I, I was at the Capitol on January 6th, but the reason I was at the Capitol was literally to do a story on people who were coming to the Capitol to harass lawmakers and try to intimidate them into overturning the election. Mm. Because I had been seeing so much of that online. I saw not just that, but I heard about caravans coming in. I heard about militia members who have a theory of government, who have a political ideology that they have a right to, 
you know, do whatever it takes to prevent tyranny coming to the Capitol. And you're like, and I'm just thinking like, oh my God, all right, if these guys are coming to Washington, this can't be good. That's the, Stuart Rhodes is coming into Washington. He's the head of the Oath Keepers. He's leading this movement. Why is he here? This isn't good. And so I pitched this story. They were kind of like, oh, okay, sure, whatever. Just go out there, mm-hmm. file by noon, and then head home. Well, this is this is the cr- a critical part of your book because you're talking about an ecosystem which exists, a media ecosystem that exists on the right, which is effective. An ecosystem and an ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah, but it's incredibly effective, and it's not on the left. The people who watch OAN, Newsmax, and to perhaps these days a lesser degree Fox, they're getting such siloed news that they mm-hmm. it, it's be, it becomes so much more effective than a Politico or a Vanity Fair, which rightly so wants to focus on the shit that matters, that's really important. But to your point... People storming the Capitol is pretty damn important, too. The threat of it going forward. The FBI will tell you the threat of violence is greater than it was back then. So we haven't moved on from January 6th, and nor has Donald Trump. The country hasn't moved. He's more powerful. He has greater grip on the Republican Party. There's a bigger threat of violence today than there was three years ago, which is astounding. But I want to get to the and how I got out part of your book Mm. title, because that to me is fascinating. I think you're an amazing person. You've been through such a journey. How did you get out? What was the point where you decided this shit's not for me? So the reason that I entered the movement in the first place, like the formalized, I am going to these programs and going to these summer camps and being indoctrinated virtually with free market economic libertarianism at the time, was because I wanted to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. And I go to Claremont McKenna. I'm trying to stack my resume with as many, like, smart things as possible to apply to a place such as the New York Times in the future. And one of those things is the Salvatore Center for the Study of Individual Freedom in the Modern World. I'm like, oh, hello. It's connected to this other institute called the Claremont Institute, um, whose motto is preserving the ideals of the American founding, Hi there. <laughs> and every summer they send out these internship lists of like, what do you want to do during the summer? So you can pop that on your resume as well. And one of them was called the um, Institute for Humane Studies Journalism Program, which promised a free, which promised a fully paid internship in journalism. And this is the year 2009. All of these newsrooms are collapsing. There's no way that I, little miss, poor ass scholarship kid, I'm going to be able to afford a free internship somewhere. And this thing comes along going, hey, we'll pay you really well for the summer. Like, you're going to get $2,000 a month to fill up your clip file and learn about the um, practice of journalism. Congratulations, you got it. But you do have to come to this seminar called Journalism in the Free Society. And once they get you to that seminar, they start going, hey, you know how we should report on TARP? Do you think that, like, the Affordable Care Act is actually a good use of our Constitution? And so that that goes on for a couple of days. Then I complete my internship, and it seems that I have, like, made myself notable as someone who's, like, one, very into journalism, and two kind of agrees with libertarian ideas. 
when fall comes around, I get invited to this um, program literally called the Institute for Humane Studies Mentorship Program. And the guy who runs the institute is saying, I will be your mentor. You can come to me for advice. I will literally help you find jobs. And I'm thinking, oh my God, this is such a huge break for me. I love this guy. He was getting me, he's getting my foot through the door. And then he started introducing me to all these more and more and more conservative outlets and people and activists who are suddenly just throwing opportunity to, and opportunity and opportunity at me. And what I've realized over time is that the press, like the conservative network is one, a formalized system, but two, a culture of like, oh, you seem promising. I'm going to give my time and energy to you in order to cultivate you to be an active, good member of the conservative network. So like if I wanted a meeting with the former secretary of commerce in order to interview her for my thesis and I knew the right guy, they'd mm -hmm. be like, oh, I'll pass on your name. She'll make time for you. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my friends who was formerly in the movement as well was telling me about a time that he was at some cocktail party and Neil Gorsuch gave him his business card and was like, hey, call me. I'd definitely love to get coffee with you. And when you're young and suddenly these huge ass, like mm -hmm. these big powerful people are giving you their time and energy and offering to help with your career, like, boom, you're there, you're in. You don't mm -hmm. want to disappoint them at all. Mm -hmm. And so that happened to me. The mentor is setting me up with places like the Collegiate Network, which is another network of student newspapers that are trying to get their editors-in-chief's jobs in mainstream media. Um, he's actively telling me not to work for Andrew Sullivan, which is weird. Uh, and then he introduces me to someone in the network who's trying to help the Daily Caller find a journalist. And that's a very long story of how I got there and then got out. But the thing that truly broke me from the movement was when I went back to this mentor of mine and saying, oh, God, I need a job. Can you help me out? He starts funneling these really, really sketchy outlets at me. Like, one of them is place called Accuracy in Academia, where they want me to go to academic conferences and write up socialist, anti-constitutional things that these academics are saying in what they believe is a safe intellectual environment. I'm like, wait, no, I don't like that. My mom was an academic. The next one is, hey, can you go to Madison, Wisconsin and report on how bad teachers unions are? It's going to be fully paid. You're going to go up there. You'll get housing in Madison. My gut goes, wait, no, you have a really clear agenda. The third thing that he throws in my direction is, hey, we need a Washington Stringer for this place called the Colorado Observer. And I start that job and immediately the guy who runs it is asking me to write what I'm starting to realize are hit pieces on Democrats. And I'm, call I'm calling him out going, wait a second. No, the thing that you're mad about this Democrat for is something that this Republican also did. And his response, and I kid you not, was the thing is, like, it's not fair that the Republican gets scrutiny and this Democrat does not. Imagine if, like, say, Jared Paulus was a Republican, what the Washington Post would be saying about him. I'm like, oh, my God, wait, what am I in right now? So I look up the guy who is my new editor, and it turns out that he was 
not just a former staffer at Americans for Prosperity, which was the Koch brother network, mm -hmm. but he was also the former chief of staff for an actual white nationalist, like an unabashed white nationalist who was literally saying things like, Mexicans are not smart enough to vote for Obama. And suddenly, not, not only am I realizing, oh my God, I'm in a bad place, but I'm also thinking, oh my God, my entire career has been set up for me to become this person. I can't do this. Fuck this shit. I'm out. Mm. And so my plan is to move to New York, get some job as a terrible writer, churning out ad copy or whatever, and just leave all of this behind. And I'm 22 at this point, which means I can absorb a little bit of risk mm -hmm. and not have to worry about like my career or parent or like children or whatever. And so I did not think I would be back in journalism. Like that was not the plan at all. Mm -hmm. I just ended up at Vanity Fair because it was a job where I could blog about the news and, you know, working at Vanity Fair is great for the resume. And then all of a sudden, Donald Trump starts coming into the equation again. And the more news that comes out about him and the people in his orbit, the more I'm starting to say, wait a second, I know these people. Why are they here? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> My editors start noticing that I'm doing this and they're like, hey, can you write about this? And yada, yada, yada. The MAGA Diaries comes out on January 16th. <laughs> <laughs> so I've had a bunch of cult people on this podcast. One of my oldest friends was in a cult. Uh, contrary to public uh, opinion, cults are not all about hippies in the 60s taking acid and listening to the Beatles. Uh, they come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, a lot of them, as we now know from The Vow, The Family, which sounds a lot like what you went through if you've seen that documentary. Um, what you've described sounds like a cult, the way you were groomed, the way you were indoctrinated, dare I say brainwashed. So my question is, is MAGA a political movement? Is it a cult? Is it a religion with a God, Orange Jesus? I don't know if this is going to be a satisfactory answer. I think that it is a movement that turned into a cult recruiting structure that got hijacked by... A, hot, a very charismatic and powerful personality that is now a cult. I'm satisfied with that, that answer. Now, yeah. I'm very yeah. satisfied with that answer. Thank you. Because mm -hmm. that's what I believe. I believe people are brainwashed. It's cultish. And your book title, it's, part of it is yeah. You Got Out. A lot of people that haven't gotten out yet. Are they going to get out? Or are they going to be like Jonestown where we see you know bodies on the ground if they just drank an, a deadly dose of political cyanide. I mean, just remember this, that cults don't exist without an infrastructure to make it so. And the bigger the cult is, the bigger the infrastructure is to support it. Like, Scientology would seem like some dumb bullshit if it were not for the fact that they had very powerful allies in the entertainment industry mm -hmm. who were there to prop them up and keep their secrets using charisma. Yeah, Scientology and the Moonies, by the way, two of the yeah. only successful cults out there because of what you're what yeah. you're saying. Yeah, the Moonies are literally an organized religion. Scientology is a religion that's taking like is an organized religion. Scientology is taking the protections that religions are afforded under the First Amendment to say, no, we're a religion, guys. Like you should let us operate the way that a church does. Mm -hmm. Um 
If you wanted to be real spicy about it, one could argue that the Catholic Church is a big cult. Oh my God, she said it, not me. But I totally agree with you. Uh, we should end this conversation. <laughs> we should the, end it right here on that. Experiment to anyone who's listening to this with the thought of canceling me. This was a thought experiment. <laughs> my last question: Where are you today politically? Are you a Democrat? Are you a Libertarian? Sounded like maybe that's what you are. Independent? Still a Republican slash conservative? Okay, this is a question that I've been getting ever since I started reporting on this beat. And I think it's because it's hard for people to quite grasp the idea that a journalist is reporting on ideology. And when I was younger, I thought it was possible to be someone who was a journalist and then also report from a view that was somewhat conservative I went down the path of what that would look like. I hated it. I bailed. Mm -hmm. I moved into the mainstream media and tried to report out from an angle that huge to what the world of journalism dictates that it should look like. The systems that are trying to support that are also failing. And maybe this is an answer that will never be satisfactory towards anyone, but... First and foremost, I want to be a journalist. Like, that is the only thing that really drives me. And whatever people do with my reporting is up to them. But I've never been a person who wants to use what it is that I believe, if I believe anything at all at this point, to, like, make the world look a certain way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's a fair answer. I'll, I'll accept that answer. And uh, actually lied. That wasn't my last question. This is my last question. And I guarantee you, you probably have not been asked this question before. Um, and it's right. because we here in the back room like to get a window into the soul of people. And one way to do that is through music. So I want to know your top five musical artists of all time. All time? Oh, all my time. God. All time. Um now you got to dig deep. Oh, okay. All right. Um, do they have to be artists or genres or? Um, right. Whatever. Let's whatever. go with artists. Let's see. One, Tchaikovsky. Two, Kendrick Lamar. Three, nice. Pitbull. Pitbull, Mr. Worldwide. Four, a lot of new K-pop in the past couple of years. Uh, my sister is a music producer, and she also has introduced me to this genre, and I'm like, now it's just something that I always listen to. Um, five, The Lonely Island. What is that? It's the comedy trio that was on Saturday Night Live and did Dick in a Box. Oh, 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 of course. <laughs> yeah, one, one of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah, so I guess from that, you could think of me as like a... a weirdo party animal that has kind of esoteric tastes but likes poetry and really dramatic music mm -hmm. and right now tchaikovsky's in his grave going hey i beat pitbull that's all i care about it's a good day for tchaikovsky exactly tina <laughs> tina this this was a lot of fun as they say in boston where you're from you are a wicked smart and uh, this was really interesting. I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your background with us and your experience inside the MAGA cult. Thank you. It really stretched, it stretched my brain in a lot of <laughs> fun directions there. And I actually am really happy the way this interview turned out. <laughs> All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. 
Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and have a great week. Thank you.